This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today has performed extensively on Broadway, off-Broadway, and in regional theaters. He's an award-winning composer and lyricist who wrote the book, Music, and Lyrics for the musical Gold Mountain. He created original music for a critically acclaimed production of Twelfth Night, and he's in development on a new original musical, Broken Ground, with Christine Toy Johnson. Joining me now is musical storyteller and Asian-American arts advocate, Jason Ma. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la. La 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 la. Hey, Pat, it's good to be here. It's really nice to meet you. You're a talented guy. I can tell from looking over your materials that you have a very diverse perspective on creativity. I feel like, especially for uh, Asian American Pacific Islander theater artists and the American theater, the more we diversify, the more we'll get a chance to work. Well, in addition, though, you've had chapters in your life where you were principally a performer or you got an invitation to be a composer, which really fascinated me. So you must have had plenty of music in your background for somebody to make that invitation to you. Music's been a part of my life since I was a child, but as far as formal training, not a lot. I would say I've studied plenty of voice as a performer, that's very necessary. But as far as composition, I am basically picked up what I could from the material I worked on as a performer. Okay. So a choir in high school and junior high, orchestra, band, jazz band, jazz choir. I always had a, I guess, a different awareness of what was going on around me. And uh, somehow I was able to pick up enough that I felt confident enough to, to write music and to arrange and to compose and to orchestrate. So how did that first invitation come for you to work on original music for someone else? as opposed to on your own? I did a lot of songwriting and arranging as, as a young performer. In Miss Saigon, I was the guy who would do the vocal arrangements for our Easter bonnet and Red Hat performances. So I always had this other finger in, in this other world. But the first invitation to write a full-length musical kind of came from a place of pure inspiration. I was in a show on Broadway and waiting to go back on stage, a little sort of song fragment popped into my head. It was lyrics and a melody, and it wouldn't leave me alone. And this was something I had never experienced before. I was usually very much a person who wrote something with an idea in mind. The idea always came first, whereas this was literally a piece of an already formed song that just popped into my head. I became obsessed with it. When the show was 
over maybe even when I was backstage, I started jotting things down. It just, it called to me very strongly. And for the rest of that summer, I wrote every single day without a day off, like seven days a week. I just kept writing and writing and writing. And as I continued to write, it became more and more clear what the story was, who these people were, what was going to happen. And I'm an older gentleman. So uh, this is before Wikipedia and YouTube and uh, you know, if I had to do research, I actually had to go to the library. <laughs> there you go. I didn't have a music program to write on, so I wrote everything by hand. I just remember walking around Manhattan all summer, writing, 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 and walking. I'd do some writing in the park, and then I'd walk a few blocks or a mile until I felt an urge to write again. And then I'd find myself parked on a rock by the river looking over the Hudson. I'd walk some more, and then I'd pop into a library or into a coffee shop. A diner. I remember once I had to write and I popped into a phone booth and just sat there and wrote for a while. And looking back, I just think, oh, gross. It was a very strong urge. It was something that I'd never experienced before and have never experienced since. My writing has been much more the normal process of being somewhere, sitting down at a desk and writing. Once you understand the structure and the discipline, you may not get results every time, but it is that constant return to the desk and putting in the hours that it reaps something. It always leads somewhere. And you're lucky when you have that muse chase you down or stop you because an inspiration is not always there. Absolutely. It is not always just waiting around to, to find you. I, I remember who said this, I'd love to credit the person, but they said that as a writer, their job was to take dictation for the character's living their lives in the story, as opposed to going in and manipulating them. And that's what sounded like you were doing at that moment musically, channeling through you. And if you didn't write it, nobody was going to write it. That's exactly it. Since that time, I feel like, especially when you're writing musical theater, when you're writing story-based music, you do have to listen very hard to your characters. But with that particular one, it was almost like eavesdropping. Is literally listening in and getting in touch with whatever, you know, this alternate uh, storytelling world was and waiting for them to coalesce to the point where you could actually hear them, see them and know what they wanted you to do. Did this lead to a fully produced musical? Yeah, it was Gold Mountain. Oh, it was. Okay. So Gold Mountain, which I've, I've done some exploring into, is an extraordinary piece that came out in 2022. Is that right? The world premiere production was in 2021 at Utah Shakespeare Festival. Which is amazing that you pulled that off coming out of the pandemic. 2021 was sort of, I'm sure you were dealing with a masked audience. Did you have to deal with masked performers as well or... We abided by equity safety protocols, and it meant at the time during rehearsal, everybody who was a non-performer was masked the entire time. So our eight-hour rehearsal days, we were in masks the entire time. The actors had to be masked when they were not working, when they were not actually on stage. We also gave everybody the option to stay masked if they wanted to as a mm -hmm. performer. That's what it was. You were staging an original production, so you were able to responsibly stage that too in terms of where people were in proximity, I'm sure. Because I know that a show like Hamilton, which was running, in addition to them stopping, they had to reimagine everything, which is complicated in storytelling to keep people from being intimate. What we did was we tested, I think, three times a week so that we could create a bubble for the cast itself. So our intimacy moments were full out 
intimacy moments. But what we did do is we were in a three-quarter thrust stage adapted from an, a, a round theater. We kept the first, I believe, five rows of the audience empty in order mm -hmm. to protect the actors and to protect the audience. Oh, that's smart. Let's just talk about the moment that you first see it fully on stage. There's so many steps to a world premiere, and I think it was 24 years in the making from when you had that yeah. sitting down in the phone booth. So yeah. you're familiar with the music, you're familiar with the dialogue, you know everything completely. Now you see a table reading, there's a step there where it's exciting, probably the first time that the music folks meet the actors. That's the first time we do it with the uh, orchestra. Is this its probe? Right. So you have that moment, and then you have your first audience. So tell me about that moment where the set is up, the costumes are on, and you're there at the back or wherever you are watching that first full performance of Gold Mountain. It was truly very, very emotional. There were moments like that all the way through, even from the first day of rehearsal, hearing songs being sung by, um, by an actor for the first time. The first time we had a costume fitting or the first time we had a makeup test, the first time we had a wig fitting, every single first was truly, truly amazing. Even collaborating with an orchestrator, seeing a poster go up, all these little incremental steps. And even before this world premiere, we did several concerts of it. We did presentations. Every time it crystallized in some form, it was mind-blowing. The first time seeing it with an audience and with a set and full costumes, sound cues, microphones, it was just completely overwhelming. There's so many elements um, in a musical, and musicals are so expensive to produce. It's a miracle to get a world premiere of a full-length musical with a large cast. I guess that you would say I was just overjoyed and overwhelmed constantly that entire night. I don't really have words other than to say it was hugely emotional and has literally changed the wiring and the DNA inside of me. I'm, I'm a different person. You have given birth to a 25-year-old baby. Yeah. You're carrying this with you. And probably during those years of writing, at least I can say this over some things I've written, <laughs> there are waves that you go through of Am I ever going to get this done? Is this really anything anybody wants to see? Am I being self-indulgent? Like you go through the doubt and the questioning yes. stages. <laughs> and each time a person boards your ship, the costumer, the set designer, and they get excited and they show support, it becomes more real. And you start to think, hey, this yeah. is going to happen. And then sometimes it takes a while to raise the money or it takes a while to find the theater availability or the cast or the rehearsal. Every step of it, you get to the point where you go, oh, may maybe this is not meant to be. But it is unbelievably graduation day at that moment when you see it for real and you also realize it's no longer yours. It belongs to the world in a way yeah. because the performers are now communicating. There's some powerful songs in that show. And I watch them singing and I think, oh man, okay, he wrote this song. Did he ever imagine that woman hitting that high note and holding it that long? Obviously you did because you're a musical composer, but but it's pretty amazing to watch that communicated to the audience and then feel the audience's the contagious nature of how uplifted they are. Yes. And I think that's when the boat launches. Yeah. That's when you see it going out to the harbor. And I know that since it has been done in other forms, so it kind of takes on a life of its own now. I actually think of it. I mean, it's funny that you should say a 
five-year-old baby. But I do feel like at some point over the years, I felt more like the caretaker or the parent of something independent of me. And my job was to hover and make sure that it was safe and taken care of and well-fed and well-represented and to stay out of the way and to let it take on its own life and its own journey. It's interesting, you know, you talk about those periods of doubt and over the years, because especially when, a, when there's such a long runway to full production, one of the things that I was able to experience through this journey was how the world and our culture and our business shifted by observing the reaction to the piece. When I first wrote the first draft, I had a great literary agent and we started shopping it around. Back then, that was more the process is that the agent would submit and then he would ferry feedback back to you. It was brutal. The quality of the writing was not in doubt. Many of them actually praised the craft itself, but they hated the idea of the piece. They hated the story and they literally said, I hate this. Wow. Why would you do this? Why would you write this? Very well-known uh, Broadway producer, uh, after reading it, said, this is very professional. I'm very surprised that you wrote this uh, because he knew me as a performer. He said, this is very surprising. He says, it sounds like two white guys wrote this, and I don't know why you would <laughs> try to write something like this when um, I think you would be better served in getting Chinese opera more palatable to Western audiences. Now, this is early 90s. So we're talking mm -hmm. about a time before much of the discussions that we're having even had the vocabulary to be discussed. And cultural inclusivity and multiculturalism, there was, we didn't even really have YouTube back then. There was no exposure to other cultures. And the gatekeepers and the folks in power back then had a very sort of monolithic idea of what a musical should be, what what stories should be told, what an audience would respond to. Right. I was getting basically shut down from the get-go, like, do not, this does not make sense for our business. This is not a story that needs to be told. Go away. <laughs> so this is a story, it took place in 1866, was the laying of the railroad and the Chinese laborers that put their hearts and souls and lives into making this transportation happen. And the central character is a Chinese fuse runner, which is a guy that runs into the tunnels. He has to light the fuse and run out to safety. Now you can fill us in further, but I want them to know the, the why people might've rejected it had to do with it being an Asian American story of really the progress of America that had not really been recognized in history books in the same way. Yes, um, that's very true. To that effect, the protagonist, the love interest, the community that's presented are all Chinese. They are not the kind of immigrants that we're used to because of the, at the time, um, these people were all driven to this country by poverty, hardship, war. And their idea was just to earn money and go home. Um, there was not this like American dream ideal that, you know, we're here to make it, to, you know, we're here to have better opportunities for our children and raise them here, which centers American culture and center, centers sort of the U.S. as the bright shining star on the hill. So I think it was that and the idea that you had to take the journey through the eyes of an Asian character. And that wasn't done at all back then. I mean, back then, you know, our representation was... Miss Saigon, The King and I, 
There was always what I would call a white tour guide. Interesting, yeah. You look at the world through that white character's eyes, the white savior and Miss Saigon, actually also in The King and I, really. So you're centering the story around people who are looking at it from the audience's point of view. And we were asking the audience to look at it through the eyes of a young Chinese man and a young Chinese woman. It doesn't seem so radical now, but in the 90s, that was very, very new. Oh, I'm sure. I think it really kind of pushed some buttons as far as reaction to the piece when they read the script. Right. In a conversation with Karen Olivo, we talked quite a bit about how Broadway is built on privilege, the cost of the ticket, the kind of yeah. consumer who has the money to go, all of that is built on white America and, and historically. And so therefore, mm -hmm. the sound of music rings in their head and sort of the classic kinds of things. We've seen change in a lot of ways. And I have to say, having had a few folks on here where I thought, oh, look what they've done in animation. Uh, my friend Pei Lin is, was involved with the Over the Moon animated oh, yeah. and, and now coming out as the Monkey King. She was involved in the Kung Fu Panda 3 and Abominable. You begin to see Asian characters, but also Asian families and even the food culture and all of the, yeah. the wonders really of a culture and a heritage coming through. And for everything that people resisted about it, are also the most magical things of opening up. It's not meant to be a direct comparison, but when the movie Fargo came out, everybody who lived on the West Coast, it was a far-fetched, odd, weird, the way they talked, what's going on. Go to Fargo. Yeah. Go spend a week anywhere around there, and you're going to see they're not fabricating this accent or these people or how they live. A trip to Dairy Queen is an adventure. It's not a weird, exotic thing. But because those executives or those advertisers lived in a different culture and grew up going to camp with a pony or whatever reasons that people yeah, get yeah. resisted. I think the biases are both intentional and, and unaware of, and the unaware of ones are really difficult to explain to people. You have to say, I know, I know you don't realize this because it's hard. It means looking in a mirror. I have to see Jason Ma in my mirror and say, what's his story? I want to know what where he came from. I'm looking at your where you are right now, and I see an image in the background. I'm going to guess it's from Gold Mountain, is it? It is. Describe that image to the viewer and tell me, because it really feels important. And it feels like part of your story, both because of the musical and the moment in the musical. So describe what we're seeing there. I would say this is a screenshot of the 11 o'clock number, which is a piece of Chinese opera that the railroad workers have are presenting to their camp and also to all the camps all over the Sierra Nevada have gathered together to celebrate the end of the strike. The railroad workers went on strike in 1867 after this brutal winter where, where many, many deaths and injuries occurred. There were 44, I believe, um, blizzards over that winter. It was like a record-breaking winter. There was just so much snow, so much hardship. They lived without plumbing, without heat, on the mountain, right by the Donner Pass. It's literally the same area of the Sierra Nevada. They were getting paid less money for longer hours and more work than white workers who were all working on the flat areas in Utah, and they'd had it, and they went on strike. But in a very sort of particularly Asian way, they kind of non-confrontational way, they just walked off the job and sat and lived their lives without working in the mountains and waited 
to see um, what kind of accommodations. They got a little bit, but not a lot. But I think maybe what they could take away from it was his sense that standing up for themselves, getting um, people to acknowledge their humanity and also their contribution. Being seen and heard had more value than the financial at that moment. At that moment, because the financial was not a lot. But they compromised more than 90% of the workforce at that point. And we never learned that in school. I was shocked when I heard that number. And I didn't hear it until quite, quite recently. I always knew that there were a lot of them. I figured, you know, maybe 50-60% Chinese and the rest were probably non-Asian workers. But by the time they were in the peak of the tunneling in the Sierra, they estimate about 90% of the workforce was Chinese. And this is something we never hear in history books, or at least we did when I was young. In fact, I didn't even hear about Chinese participation when I was young. Well, I heard an interview the other night with you and someone else. And you just talked about uh, the importance of, of understanding that we're a country of immigrants and that you were using your story to share with us how many Americans it took, including folks there to create from so many cultures and so many voices that bring us together. So what resonates with me is that this is 100% still relevant to what's happening maybe at the border coming in through a wall or just wanting safety, wanting to send money home, wanting to be sure that life is better yeah. in some way. And this is the thing I question about humanity. Why are we always looking for the other? Why are we building walls instead of bridges? I don't get it myself, but it seems like everywhere you turn a corner, somebody is resisting somebody else's humanity. And it it's it's heartbreaking. It seems to be baked into our culture and our history as well. A cycle that continues, you know, of vilifying the other, of deciding that somebody who's different than you, um, whether it's like the Italian and Irish immigrants or breed enslaved persons, Asian immigrants, everybody has to take their turn being vilified. And I wish we could skip that step. Yeah. Because honestly, when I look at people coming over from the border, I really think of my own father and uh, coming over during the era of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was enacted, by the way, in 1882, just less than 15 years after the railroad was completed. So basically, uh, it's like, we're done with using your bodies to <laughs> create this transcontinental railroad. Now, either go away and stop bringing more of your people here. But that remained in federal law in some form all the way through World War II. Federal law. That's crazy. I watched an amazing series on PBS during May, of course, when there was a amplified Asian American month. And there were so many ahas in this PBS series, uh, you know, about Filipinos yes. fighting in the war on behalf of America and yet getting here and then in internment. It makes no sense. And yet, as you said, people who make rules or laws or who have fears, unfounded fears of other people are always creating some obstacle to make it better for themselves and worse for somebody else. Yeah. You know, Pat, sometimes I wonder, because you're right, it doesn't make sense. It, it literally doesn't. It's not logical. And I feel like people use this fear of the other to consolidate power. The internment, I'm so glad you actually brought that up. When you think about those Japanese concentration camps during World War II, Japanese people from the East Coast and Japanese people in Hawaii were not rounded up. The two geographical areas that are the closest to the arena of war were exempt. And why is that? Does that make sense? If you're literally trying to contain an alien threat, 
Did we round up Italians and Germans during World War II? No. Where it comes to hatred, where it comes to greed, where it comes to power, it doesn't ever make sense. No, you're right. When I talk to creatives and I talk to artists and I talk to people whose life is not built on power, it's a hopeful thing. A thing that jumped out at me when we talked to Karen Olivo is she talked about how sports puts people in uh, arena on a team against a team, and then the players play against each other, and you're rooting for your outcome. Okay, so that's a division. The game is meant for one to win right. and one to lose. Where theater is something where everybody wins. You leave and with a feeling and energy, the performers win in the performance they take home. There's a difference. And if the world or if life operated more that way, as opposed to that binary sense of sports, like you can divide people, pick a thing and somebody likes bananas and somebody doesn't. And is that enough? The golden rule to me, treat others the way you want to be treated, has somewhat been bound up. That's the easiest and simplest rule. It, it's all tied into caring about other people, especially recently in our political discourse. We have managed to turn that into a political thing where you consolidate power by getting people not to care about other people. And I feel like with storytelling, you know, the thing that you and I both do, that is an empathy creation machine is storytelling. Certainly now, more than ever, we need that. And I have to say, I'm so grateful that now people are willing to look at a story like the one in Over the Moon or Gold Mountain, where it is perfectly acceptable and easy to jump into the skin of an Asian character and empathize with their feelings, their families, their obstacles. The world has changed in that way. Maybe that's the flip side of the coin. Maybe what we're experiencing is the pushback to that idea that we can empathize with all sorts of people now. That's threatening to certain people. So they push back harder with even more sort of negativity and othering and hate because they feel like they're losing their grip on what was generally accepted, let's say, in the early 90s, uh, where a story like this was just unheard of and you could tell things to a writer that you would never dare say now. So the world is changing. Whether they like it or not. Change is difficult for everyone. Changes doesn't come easily. But it is interesting, and I'll generalize because it's not about any one thing, but whether it's ethnicity or sexuality or religion, sometimes people can maybe accept it in their home or their family. They can thaw a little bit, but they can't understand the bigger concept in the world. And so there's just a great resistance to learn or to accept because if in some ways that maybe means admitting that they were wrong along the way. Like that's the hardest thing I think for human beings is to sometimes say, oh, I don't know everything. We see it every day. And I do see great glorious things as well. I see great generosity and I see extraordinary voices that are coming that we would not seen 10 years ago. Now we have a lot of interesting places where those things can surface because of the internet, because of different independent channels, we are able to see so much more. I'm fascinated by what the arts do for it. I get kind of disappointed when the government or somebody says, hey, let's let's get rid of the arts program in the school or the after school program, because it isn't about producing more visual art. It's about producing more self-confident, imaginative people. You do a lot of different kinds of art. 
because you do music and you do performance, you're you direct at times. And in a place of leadership like that, you can see every one of those performers grow when they're cast and when they perform and when they go out to the schools and when they do the next step. That is a lasting ripple and impact that comes from a song you wrote. And you're not delivering it anymore. It's being taken around by other people. I feel like an incubator system for self-confidence and self-worth comes from the arts. It does. And, you know, again, I, I just wonder, sometimes I think people are just afraid of people becoming more in touch. Because let's face it, when you're exposed to the arts, you start to open up. It just, it opens up your soul. It opens up your heart. It opens up your mind. Um, no matter what kind of art it is, that's just the nature of what it does. And when you do that, you start to connect with people in a different way. You start to empathize. You start to see things differently. You start to expand your view of the world. And that is threatening to people who are trying to consolidate power based on a narrower view of the world. I think that's part of the reason why in the U.S. especially, um, the arts is kind of demonized by a certain political stripe. And I just think that's they are threatened by it for some reason. Uh, a Lin-Manuel Miranda comes from somewhere. And I put you in that category, a person that's doing books, lyrics, music. It comes from you being able to develop all those talents as a performer and then in each production to learn something. It takes time and it certainly takes an environment. That environment gives us permission to spread our wings and to explore more. And I feel like once it hits the marketplace... It's those pop songs. It's all of those things that people can sing in their car that empowers them in the same way. I know that certain songs, when I broke up with somebody, that song got me through it. Absolutely. The arts are so important to the human experience, I think. It makes us human. I'm so worried about theater right now, by the way. Tell me about your worries about theater. My worries about theater right now are that somehow we have gotten ourselves in a situation where people are not coming, not in the numbers that they used to. And uh, no, nobody saw it coming. Everybody's figured that after the pandemic, once we all kind of got our feet back under us, that audiences would return in the same numbers they did pre-pandemic. And I think that's actually true of movie going as well. We've all gotten used to being at home. And for musical theater, what is interesting to me is that it's never been more popular or cool. But I believe that there are so many new outlets for musical theater type storytelling that can take place at home, in bed, in your sweats, that we're just going to have to start rethinking or developing audiences again, because the traditional theater going audiences are, are aging and they're not coming back in the way that we had hoped they would. And we have not done enough work in developing younger generations of theater goers. And so now we're scrambling. And that's why I'm worried. I can understand that. And I completely agree with you about the movie theaters. I don't understand how a movie theater in a mall can even afford the real estate, given how few people might attend, except maybe a blockbuster thing. But for the most part, those kinds of stories can be seen on your phone. They can be seen on an airplane. They can be seen when you want, not at a scheduled time. All of those obstacles, after people binge the entire internet over a couple of year period, is created a habit. But I would say in terms of musical theater, there is no replacement for that contagious live experience 
of everybody having a community inhale and exhale over something. We realize it a little bit. After the pandemic, the first few concert you went to, you know how much you love it. You know how visceral that feeling is. But in terms of developmental musical theater, I remember when Rent came along and it spoke to a younger audience. And those young people started coming out. And Book of Mormon and Avenue Q and Hamilton, but not so many. They're years apart on those kinds of things. And so the investment or time of that is habitually not being built into that system. And part of it is, is that we're not necessarily building the makers of the Young Voice musical. Where is that system if it's not coming right from a person themselves? If you don't have a Robert Lopez who's wildly talented and his wife Kristen are writing the Frozen stuff, that's generated from what I would call engines of the car. You're the engine of Gold Mountain. And if you don't put in the 24 years, there's no Gold Mountain. Gosh, when you put it like that, why would anybody write a musical? (laughs) It is the biggest, slowest turning steamship in the ocean. Yeah, and that is part of the problem, though. I do believe that we do have institutions that develop new musicals, but the output of production is small. Also, the musicals that are actually being produced commercially are usually manufactured. They're manufactured from movie or from a jukebox compilation of somebody's songs. So each one of those projects takes up real estate. So there's not a lot of space, even if people are writing, and people are writing. Since that's my community, there are a lot of people writing musicals. People getting produced? No, (laughs) absolutely not. That's something we need to look at too. Yeah, and we can talk about this because it is very hard to get a yes to produce a piece. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. It takes a long time. Getting the right venue where you can sit and develop and get a return on your money. The running operational cost of things when they're already up. So you have that all that pre-production cost, which just is spend, spend, spend. But when the show runs, it's got to keep spending money on cab toppers and billboards. And so as the closer you get to Broadway, the more expensive it is to keep it running. Oh, yeah. I mean, and people don't know it. I think that sometimes the theater goer might complain about spending $100, $150 to go see a show. Admittedly, it's a lot. But what you get for the money in the end, there's a lot of sweat equity and a lot of heart and soul. That's because it's operated by human beings. All of those pieces, they're replacing orchestras with music that's made mechanically. And that stinks, but it comes down to those business decisions. It used to be cheaper though. More original works could be done. Really ambitious producer could take a second mortgage out on their home and produce an entire show, get a show to Broadway. And now get a show to Broadway, the number that's usually quoted is somewhere between five to $10 million. Yeah, easily. Yeah. So that's a whole different thing. It's become corporatized. And, you know, most of us who write shows that are not considered commercial, we're aiming for uh, regional theater premieres and super grateful that that even that happens because they are also in trouble economically. They also have to balance their programming to accommodate for their next year's budget. It's it's crazy. Well, which is why when a theater is programmed, they got to put Nutcracker or Christmas Carol in there for a certain amount of revenue to take a risk on something else. If they don't drop exactly. in the Music Man or they don't drop in this show, then they can't do the other four shows. It just doesn't make it possible. Yeah. And honestly, coming out of pandemic, when you look at programming now, it's been flipped. 
there are four like very blockbuster pieces that are commercial that are familiar to the audiences that have built-in brand and one let's say or two at the most pieces that people will not have heard of and that's just the new reality right now well from a marketing and branding standpoint you mentioned the jukebox musical and it is the reason that they have to take a a brand that they know a theme song from a title of a existing property, even if it's old, they actually have to cast somebody who won American Idol that year. They're hedging their bet towards getting a return on their money. And that all has to do with that five and $10 million cost to recover. Yeah. Right. It's like, how do we put a winning horse and a winning jockey and the shortest track? It's the only way they can get out of it. My writing, which is comedic, it's not musical. I did write a musical with a New York composer and I learned the the long, arduous process. I would love to <laughs> see it produced. But like many people we've just talked about, we've had a staged reading at the York Theater in New York some years ago, and then it sits for a long period of time. And then you wonder, do I need to be a, in a fundraising point? So that is complicated. Yeah. With the comedy and the smaller cast items that I work with, I had always written with the off-Broadway model in mind, which has been busted for 20 years. You cannot make enough money back to pay for the show. doesn't matter how long you run or how big the star is or what you're doing. It's just the seat numbers and the price numbers never add up. And I really like that experience. I really like that unknown, original, let's take a chance on this show kind of experience. And originality to me is king way over anything else. I can understand why musicals are made out of brands and jukebox music. I understand it. But I really want to go to the theater and see something cut from whole cloth and made for the purpose of this audience and customization and personalization and building it with the cast that develops it over time and goes through the rehearsal process. Like that's super exciting to me. And we see less and less of it. Yes, that's very true. As far as New York is concerned, gentrification and the rising rents that that has caused, it's like I understand that you want your city to be attractive and livable. But if this were Europe, uh, you would also have funding for the arts and support for theaters so that that could offset the gentrification. And But our model is strictly profit-driven. So th that's what's happened to us, is that we now live in a really nice destination city, but it has really endangered one of the things that brings people to this city, which is uh, theater. Um, it's just gotten safer and safer and more and more corporatized um, as the decades have gone on. Well, here's my hope for you. I'm going to look out 10 years, and I'm going to hope that the conversation we're having is, why is everybody doing Gold Mountain every year to make money? Why is Gold <laughs> Mountain on every show and every theater? That's what I hope for you. Oh, thanks, Pat. I want to let the audience know that they can find out more about that by going to goldmountainthemusical.com and much more about you by going to jasonmamusic.com, which was really fun. I spent some time in there listening to some of the songs from the musical last night. I so appreciate your investing the time to share your insights and inspiration, Jason, and I wish you continued luck moving forward. Thanks so much, Pat. This was such a great conversation. I had a great time. Thank you. Let's close out this episode with a studio excerpt of the song Your Eyes from Jason's musical Gold Mountain, sung by Ali Ewalt and Johnny Lee Jr. 
When I look into your eyes, I see many things. And they tell me that no matter where I roam, that as long as you're beside me, you remind me what's inside me. When I look into your eyes, I see Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're